listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined by a special guest. I always say our guests are special when they're from Alabama, but today we have Joshua Ferrari with Ferrari Capital. So we're super glad to have Joshua here. He has had a tremendous amount of success. He's done a phenomenal job raising capital over the last few years, and I believe he's actually from Indiana, so don't let that Southern accent fool you. Joshua, welcome to the show. What is going on? I am actually not from Indiana. I'm technically <laughs> from Memphis. Uh, that's what I tell most folks. But my dad was in the military. We kind of lived a little bit everywhere. But Memphis is where we live the longest. That's where they still live. Uh, and I've been living in Southern Alabama for yeah, about four years now. Awesome. Well, great to have you. Can you tell us the rest of your story? You know, kind of where you started, how you got interested in real estate, what you did before, and and just kind of help bridge the gap for us. So literally last night was the first night that I ever even found out about real estate. And then today I've got 90 units, $7 million raised. It's great. You know, overnight success. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so about it's a little over three years ago when, um, when I had decided or had this idea implanted in my head of what real estate even was, like what that was all about. And six months prior, I had moved, just moved out of my parents' house from Memphis to move down here to Mobile after having graduated college to start what I thought was going to be this long-standing career as uh, as an aircraft technician in aviation. So moved down here by myself initially, um, lived in an apartment to start working. And then that November, I got married, went on our honeymoon about early December. We finally got her moved here, moved down here with me in Mobile. And then that following January, January of 2018, one week night, my dad calls me up and tells me that him and my mom have something that they like need to tell me, you know, like, hey, we got something to talk to you about. Like, what the heck is this going to be about? (laughs) And they were like, we're getting ready to like pay $40,000 to go through this course that's going to teach us like everything we need to know like how to flip houses. And I was like, what? Flip <laughs> houses? Like where, where is this coming from? You know, where's the $40,000 coming from? How, how do you know that this course is the right course? Like, how do you know you're really gonna make this thing work? You know, I had all these questions. So the, the conversation ended up being this like four hour long conversation. And at the end of it, the idea of, you know, investing in real estate was then planted in my head. Like this this is legit. You know, I could seriously do something like this. I was 21 at the time, fresh out of college, freshly married, fresh out of my parents' house. <laughs> no, I had no idea like what was happening at, at that time. But now I know looking back, what was happening is the complete mindset shift and a complete transformation of like, hey, we're headed in this direction. It's like, nope, now we're headed way over here. Like it's way better over here. This is the direction we want to go. So then I was, was like, okay, I'm intrigued. I want to learn more. You know, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to do flipping, but I know I want to get into real estate investing. So jumped into reading books, listening to podcasts, going to local meetups. I probably read 40 books that year. It was more books than I had ever read in my 21 years of existence mm-hmm. and was going to three different local real estate meetups and was listening to the Bigger Pockets podcast and some of the some other podcasts that I had found. 
and trying to absorb as much as I could. We initially got into wholesaling. We tried that for about five or six months. Didn't close a single deal. Maybe got six or seven deals under contract on the sell side, but no buyers ever bought anything. I mean, we tried the JV thing and everything, nothing, no bites. So we said, okay, this wasn't really the goal anyway. We don't want to build a wholesaling empire. It's just another job. We want passive income. So let's save the money we're making and let's buy something. So then uh, two months later, we bought a fourplex that we house hacked and then quote unquote syndicated before I really knew what syndication was. I just knew that everyone told me you have to use other people's money. If you don't use other people's money, you'll never be successful in this business. I was like, well, I know my dad's in real estate. So why don't I call him up and see if he'll help me out with this down payment? Cause I didn't have the money at the time. So I called him up and he was like, yeah, that sounds great. I gave him a little piece of equity in the deal in exchange and off we were off to the races. Our very first investment, ready to go all excited. Well, that deal ended up being a living nightmare. And that's a whole nother story that we can talk about if you want. But <laughs> about six months into that I absolutely deal, want to, by the way, <laughs> about six months into that deal, we were continuing to educate ourselves on what was what was possible, I guess, and kind of the direction that we wanted to head in. And I remember stumbling across syndication because we bought this fourplex. So we knew we like multifamily. So that's what I was continuing to try to learn about. And I remember stumbling upon syndication and there just so happened to be a guest speaker from Pensacola coming over to Mobile to speak on multifamily syndication. The fact that he had done like 1200 units or something and that gave a little bio about him. Well, this guy seems like he knows what he's doing. I'm gonna go to this meetup. So I go to the meetup, the meetup ends. And I was just like, who was that? It's Jeremy hands. Okay. I was just like dumbfounded. Like, holy cow, this is the direction I'm going to head in. This is what I need to do. Like, it just solidified everything that I had learned up to that point. So I ended up going up to talk to the speaker after that and found out that we both had aviation in common. He's actually a naval helicopter pilot. And that's kind of how we clicked. And then he let me take him out to lunch that next week. And he's kind of been like my mentor ever since. So now now I know I want to be in multi-alien syndication. Now I've got this somewhat of like an organic uh, mentorship relationship and I'm ready to go. You know, I'm all excited. I want to just continue absorbing as much information as I can and buy that next deal. Well, then it it ended up taking probably about another six months to a year before we actually bought a deal that was a syndication. And I had a different partner that wasn't my mentor that I was partnering with to buy that deal. And that deal was a 21 unit single family portfolio and I met that partner through Bigger Pockets, interestingly enough, because he lives in Gulf Shores. I'm in Mobile. We're like 30 minutes apart. And he met me on an international website. I always just think that's funny. Mm. But that's kind of how we met. So we partnered, did that 21 unit single family portfolio. Then the next deal that we got took about another year to get. And that was actually our first multifamily. And that was when we brought on our third partner. Now there's three of us. We've since closed a 42-unit apartment complex, a 34-unit apartment complex. We've got another 148 units under contract, another 88 units. We're probably going to get under contract today, if not early next week. And then we got a, we actually have a single-family luxury flip that we're about to close on probably Tuesday of next week, which is kind of a one-off. It's not really something we're striving to, you know, look for, but it was going to be, it's going to be a quick million dollars for us. So it was one of those things we couldn't really pass up, take that money, dump it back into multifamily. And then our goal this year for 2021 is actually to reach a thousand units. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Sounds like you've been busy. There's a little bit. <laughs> so let me start from the beginning. I want to hear about what went wrong in that fourplex. I think what went wrong was was everything. I mean, because I ended up having to be the jack of all trades in this deal. Uh, I thought that we were only going to have to manage the property. Since we were going to live there, I didn't think it would be that big a deal for us to property manage. And I was like, it could save us a little bit of money. It'd be great. And that we'd have the general contractor and everyone else handling all the renovations. And I would just kind of be managing the general contractor. Well, that kind of turned into a big fiasco because we did a 203K FHA loan, which is a paperwork nightmare for those that have not done that before. And we ended up having to fire our first contractor because they doubled the budget and tripled the timeline on the first unit. I was like, well, can't stick with these folks. So I found another contractor before firing that one. But then the process, the paperwork process of firing that one and getting the next one took five months. So during that five months, the FHA, you know, HUD basically said, hey, you can't have anyone work on this property while we're going through this paperwork. Like, and if you do, we're not paying for it. And all of my renovation money was in that loan, you know, in the (laughs) renovation side of that loan. It's like, what do you mean? You're not going to pay for it. So we had to start getting credit card debt. We had to start getting personal loans and I had to start picking up the hammer. I just thought, Hey, if I can fix an airplane, I can fix a house. Like it can't be that difficult. So I just started going to YouTube university and I became the carpenter, the painter, the electrician, the sheetrock guy, everything. I literally became the jack of all trades. Sounds passive. Yeah, totally. passive. (laughs) Totally passive. So that was one big fiasco that we didn't really account for the loan that we got and then the work that it was going to take to actually renovate this house. Cause when we bought it, none of the units were livable. And I'm thinking from what, from everything I've heard that you want to buy the ugliest house you can possibly buy, you know, cause that's where you can get the most value at. I was like, heck yeah, that none of these units are livable. Like there's tons of value at here. And Yeah. Tons being way too much for us as beginner investors. You know, 4,100 square feet of value add was too much for us. But that was one mistake, kind of like biting off too big a, a chip than we could really chew. And then the deal itself had some other issues that we didn't find. You know, we brought four different contractors before we closed on it with us to walk the property to give us like quotes and bids, which I thought was more than enough because everyone always said that was what you needed to do. But then every time I tried to get them to write an official like bid and actually bid out work to have them do it when we eventually closed, none of them would write the bid. None of them were willing to sit down, write something and send it to me. And that should have been some red flags there, but I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, well, they're just lazy and maybe there's just better work somewhere else and they just don't care. So I'll just get a different contractor. I find contractors aren't big fans of paperwork. Uh, yeah. And that's why we, you know, we ended up getting four. It was anywhere between 80 to 90,000 of what it was going to cost. So when we actually closed the deal, we got a hundred thousand dollars plus like a 15% buffer on top of that. So I thought we were going to have more than enough. Well, full cycle, we ended up going $40,000 over budget past that 15% buffer. So obviously it wasn't enough. And we found foundation issues and we found structural issues and all the stuff that we should have found initially, but we didn't hire a professional inspector to inspect it. 
And going through HUD, there was an inspector that inspected it, but it was their inspector. And he was going to be the consultant, I think is what they called him. He was going to be the consultant for the contractor as well as the inspector for, you know, the initial and then throughout the renovations and so on and so forth. And so I don't know if he was just lackadaisical or he just really didn't care. Like, I don't know what happened there, but I don't know how you miss foundation issues and structural issues and all these major things, but he missed it. And shame on me because I missed it too. But that was another thing. I mean, it was like, it was just issue after issue after issue that kept piling on top of each other on that deal. Granted, we, we went full cycle with that deal in January of this year. We didn't lose any money. So it wasn't all half bad, but it was a living nightmare during the experience. I've had experiences very similar, so don't feel bad. But so I have two questions. The first question, how did your wife feel about living in one of those units? Bro, that first um, <laughs> that first unit we lived in, there was one that was semi-livable because there was actually the seller was living there when when she owned it and she sold it to us. The kitchen was okay. But the AC like went out on us when we first moved in there. There was cockroaches everywhere. It's just like the heat of the summer. <laughs> we barely, like most of our furniture is in storage because we were waiting for the for it to be livable before we like brought all of our stuff there. So all we had was like a bed, a couple box fans. We, I think we brought our couch or a chair or something and like a coffee table, you know? And so it was, and then the best part, the shower didn't work in the Ooh. unit we were living in. So only the bath, but, the bath worked. But, but how old are y'all? I was 21 at the time and she was 23 at the time. Oh, oh, so that's not as bad. I lived in those happy conditions at that age. I just think about like, I didn't start getting interested in real estate investing until I was like in my early thirties and my wife was in her late twenties. And I loved the idea of house hacking once I'd heard of it, but like trying to convince her to move into a, a foreplay, I didn't even get entertained on that. I got shut down so fast. The other question is with, with all of the government restrictions from HUD and FHA or 203K, like how were you able to give your dad equity in that? Or was it just kind of one of those, he's my dad, it's off the books. Whenever I sell it, I promise I'd give him this much. It was completely out the books. There was no legalities <laughs> anywhere because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And my dad didn't know too much either because he was on the, the flipping side of things. So he was just like, yeah, I mean, it's like a handshake. I'm, You're my I'm, son. Here's some money. I'm, yeah. I'm curious. How is the flipping going for him? For him, it's going okay. They kind of died off a little bit on the flipping side and they went more rental because that was what they wanted to do eventually either. So they sure been buying more rentals and since COVID they slowed down and they're actually getting into an Amazon. They're creating like an Amazon business and then they want that business to feed into real estate. So they're like taking a break from real estate and while they're doing the Amazon thing and then they want the Amazon money to take them back into real estate. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. So they're doing that, but also I guess they're not completely taking a break from real estate. Maybe they're taking a break on the active side, but They've invested in a few passive deals with some with some sponsors. So, cool, cool, cool. I'm assuming you're one of those sponsors. I'm actually not. They will not. <laughs> they, they didn't want to. Yeah, they didn't want to give me that amount of money 
yet until they yeah, saw yeah, that yeah. I had a track record of success. I'm like, wow, my own parents don't even trust me. Like, yeah. Crazy. So let's go on to the other deals. So my question, first of all, I think I know part of the answer to this question is, so it's around deal flow. And it seems like you, I mean, you've raised a significant amount of money and, and not to belittle that, that's huge. But it, it seems like the big challenge these days for most folks is more deal flow. Like there's so much money in the market and nowhere to put it. And I know I've had a tremendous amount of struggles, you know, finding finding enough deals to place everybody's money. So, but you seem to be buying them left and right. And I'm just curious as to kind of like what your procedure around that is. And I'm wondering, do you think that part of that is the market that you selected? Because it's a smaller market. I think it's a great market. We've, we've entertained it. We've just never gotten around to looking there. But most folks, if you look at on a national scale, what people are looking for for large multifamily, they tend to gravitate towards these larger markets. And, and Mobile is, is, I think, a much smaller MSA than than most of these big guys are targeting. Is that what you accredit most of your deal flow to? Or what does what y'all's underwriting process look like? What does your deal sourcing process look like? And just kind of walk us through that. I think a lot of it is the market that we're in, in Mobile. You know, pre-COVID, we were kind of like flying under the radar. And, and it was great. It was great for us because newbies trying to get in, we didn't have a lot of competition from from the outside looking in to kind of compress cap rates and make numbers not make sense. We actually had a higher chance of, you know, maybe doing a best and final or something of that sort and actually getting the deal. So I think a lot of it was the market. We actually are the third largest MSA in Alabama, but we're also the fastest growing. And it's kind of funny that we'd be the fastest growing and still the most like underseen, like kind of still flying under the radar while we're growing the quickest. So it's kind of crazy, but all the market data and economics and specifics really are trending towards it being, you know, nothing you, but, a, is but an it, amazing is investment. Is it Huntsville, Birmingham, and then Mobile? Maybe. It's a good <laughs> question. I've just done a lot more research on Mobile than any other, any other sure, market. Sure. But I think a lot of it is market, yes. And then also our primary like source of deal flow has just been brokers. You know, we could have done the whole direct to seller lead gen thing and paid all that money and done all those phone calls and spent all that time. And it works. Don't get me wrong, that strategy works. I know some people that are using it that are still snatching up deals left and right. But we just thought big picture, you know, what do we want our life to look like? But then also what were we really striving for? What do we really want to achieve in this business? And at the end of the day, it wasn't my specialty. It wasn't any of my partner's specialty to try to create, you know, there's probably a thousand plus different sellers in the markets that we're interested in. Like, do we really want to go and create a thousand relationships with folks? Because at the end of the day, it's going to take a handful of touches before they ever really trust us to give us their deal, you know, their multi-million dollar sure. deal, you know, unless we just get a best case scenario where they're like just in utter and complete disarray and they just need to sell immediately, which that's a complete one-off, but also possible, but primarily building these strong relationships. We didn't feel like that was really the best use of our time. So we said, okay, well, what about creating really strong connections with three or four high level brokers? You know, that's, that's much more feasible. That's much more plausible. And then their full-time job is to create these relationships and put two and two together 
And well, some, some people say, well, what about the fees? You know, you could bypass the fees if you went straight to the seller and sure. But at the end of the day, if the numbers make sense, we're not really worried about it. We'd sure. rather, we'd rather and them do what they're best at so we can do what we're best at. I don't necessarily hear a lot of folks balking at the fees for what I run into. It's typically just getting the deal to pencil out. And you had mentioned it was, I think, easier before COVID. How has COVID affected that? I would assume more people sitting at home, accessing more remote ways to scour the internet and source deals that way. And how are you underwriting your deals? What is, do you have a back of the napkin approach that you're looking for when you're underwriting these deals? And how aggressive are you going with the, with the rent growths? And has that changed in the last year? Definitely has changed. We're not underwriting. If the property's already at market, we're not underwriting that there'll be any rent growth, just basically that it'll plateau for the next one or two years. But most of the deals that we're buying, the rents are under market. So we're estimating somewhat of a growth, whereas previous we might have seen a three to maybe six or 7% increase if it was under market year over year. Now we're estimating more like one or 2%. If it's under market, if it's already at market, then we just forget about it and don't expect anything to increase. So primarily where we've had to put a lot more focus on the expense side of things and kind of streamlining some of the property management, maybe incorporating a rubs or doing anything that we possibly can. You know, I've heard of some people doing like installing solar panels. I heard of some people <laughs> doing some, some really <laughs> odd and things, but when we looked at it, some of the financials made sense when you were able to incorporate some of those things, depending on how large the deal was. So we just had to pay a lot more attention to the expense side of things. And we also have been continuing to get some off-market deal flow from some brokers. And with some of our local connections, as far as property management goes, we have been able to get some more creative structures, maybe on some of the property management side, whereas typically you see, you know, a two, three, 4% property management fee and then payroll. We've been able to get no payroll at all. And then just either a flat, like six, seven or 8% on the management fee. So that's helped tremendously with some expenses and then streamlining some other things. My partner's got a ton of great connections with contractors and other folks. And he's got different connections with some materials because materials have been going up. So we've been getting some 20 Have they to, been going up? <laughs> yeah, some 20 to 30% discounts on some different materials. So we, we're just having to really asset manage now. You know, previous for the last decade, you could be Joe Blow, buy a deal, do nothing to it and make money. But now where you're really seeing who's really a great asset manager in these deals. And that's going to determine, first of all, whether or not you're going to be able to buy something if you have the creative juices to be able to make it work. But then also, if you already have something, if you're going to be able to make it continue to work or if it's going to just fall apart in your hands. Yeah, absolutely. So oh, you mentioned value add. Is that something that y'all focus heavily on is, is value add or everything's value add, I guess. My question is around renovations specifically. Are you focusing on, on renovations or just operational efficiencies? Probably a little bit of both. I guess more of what we've seen here recently has been some operational efficiencies, but almost every deal that we buy has some sort of value add. You know, even if it's already kind of, if the, say all the interiors are already kind of renovated to 
standard, you know, to market standard. And, you know, we could put stainless in there or marble countertops or whatever, but would that really increase the value? Probably not, probably not for the area. So in those kind of circumstances, it's, well, can we just give it a new paint job? Do we think a new paint job will make it look more appealing or could we add one specific amenity or, you know, how does the parking lot look? Does it need redone or say there's a laundry room and all the laundry units are kind of outdated. You know, maybe they just need to be looking fresh and new and nice. And so it's like some things that are maybe already there, but we're making it more efficient by making it you know nicer. And then sometimes, sometimes that increases, you know, NOI, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it increases, you know, if they've got like occupancy issues and we're able to add something like that in there, then it just increases desirability, which will help us get a higher level of tenant. And then, you know, especially during COVID with some people not paying, and there being this whole have you, moratorium have, thing. Have you had issues with that? We have had slight issues. I'll say 2 to 3% probably of our total portfolio of some people that just either A, refuse to pay because we know they're getting money from stimulus or B, are saying that they're just struggling financially and they can't pay. And so we've tried like cash for keys. We've but, but, dri- but drive up with their brand new car. <laughs> We haven't seen that. We have not seen that yet. But if we did, that would be, oh, that'd be another story. What type of returns are you projecting? Maybe for somebody out there that doesn't know much about syndication or, you know, doesn't really understand what the industry standard is or or how much a passive investors in real estate syndications make. What does your typical deal look like? to a passive investor what projected returns are you underwriting and and an average general i imagine you probably stay within certain parameters i'm just trying to you know maybe any of our listeners out there that that aren't familiar with this game what they could expect if they were to reach out to you and find out more information yeah so primarily all the deals we've done today have been your standard syndication uh no crazy waterfall structures standard 70 30 split with about a five to seven year hold time frame, and so in that time frame, we typically won't do a deal unless we're at least doubling our investors' money. So you're typically going to see anywhere between eight to fifteen percent cash on cash on average year over year, and then total ROI at the end of it being you get all of your initial investment back plus double. You know, if you invested fifty thousand, you get the fifty thousand dollars back plus another fifty thousand over that full you know, five-year time frame. That's typically been the deals that we've done to date. But this 148 unit we got on a contract is going to be completely different and unlike any other deal we've ever done before. And it's probably because we brought in a KP team to kind of get us over that threshold. It's a bigger deal than we've ever done before. And then it's needed a little bit higher level of thought. Finance, finesse. As well as, yeah, some of that finesse. So brought them on and not only were they kind of our handling a lot of the KP side of things, but they've also kind of been the brains of, you know, giving us some ideas, some thoughts on what we could potentially do with this deal. Well, they introduced us to this waterfall structure that I feel like I might've heard once before, but never really thought it was something I'd ever be able to implement, but then realized that there's actually a lot of benefits to this. So anyhow, it's actually gonna be a long-term hold, 10 to 30 year hold. Um, Are you doing a refi to return investor capital? Yes. So in the first through third year, the goal is to do a refinance to return all of initial member 
capital invested. So we'll also have a 10% PREF. So they should get a minimum of a 10% year over year during that time frame. Plus whenever we do the refi, they'll get their full, say $50,000 back. So now they got their money back. They can use that to reinvest into another deal we have or keep it or exponentialize it elsewhere or do whatever they went with it. They're made whole again. There's no risk in the deal. Well, now the cash flow split is going to invert. So instead of it being 70-30 LPGP, it's going to be 70-30 GPLP. So now us as GPs are going to get 70% of the cash flow for the life of the deal. And they're going to get 30%. But the equity is still going to stay the same. So on the depreciation side, on the tax side of things, they're actually going to be able to still retain that 70% you know, equitable share of actual taxable depreciation. So it's more of like a tax play, long-term tax play, plus you're getting all your money back, plus we're avoiding uh, capital gains because we're not selling. So with the refinances throughout the life, the 10 to 30 year life frame, they're going to be able to see continuous like lump sums of cash back. Plus, you know, the infinite returns that they'll be getting because they've been made whole and now they're getting 30% cash flow, plus not having to pay capital gains, plus retaining their 70% equity for depreciation over the life of it. And then our our benefit and our desire to continue holding and managing for 10 to 30 years is sure. that we just invert the cash flow. I've never heard of that before. I hadn't either. And it's it's really exciting. And I'm I'm I ready bet. to jump into that. That's interesting. I'm going to have to dive more into that. <laughs> so what is next for you guys? Man, next next step, we actually just wrote our Vivid Vision about a month-ish ago. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard, read the book Vivid Vision by Cameron Harold. Phenomenal book. Everyone needs to read it. I did but, not read the book, but I did listen to him get interviewed the other day on Bigger Pockets. And I recall Brandon Turner talking years ago about writing his. And I, I've been wanting to hammer one out. So it's, it's, it's been on my to do. Is the concept basically enough explained, or do I literally need to go read the book before I do it? I think it's explained, but I think the book helps a lot. It helps you get in that mindset of what it's going to look like, feel like, smell like. It helps you get in this mindset of needing to create one. Because if you don't read the book, I mean, it seems like you heard about it and you knew yeah. about it. But yeah, how long? Yeah, yeah. You still haven't done it, you know? Fair so enough. Fair read enough. It, reading the book kind of like pushes you over the edge. Like, holy cow, I need to write this thing. I need to take the time. And honestly, I read the book a year and a half ago. And then I settled for bullet points for a full year. My wife and I just put bullet points together because I've never been a copywriter. So well, this will be good enough. And it wasn't good enough. So I actually sat down and wrote out, you know, it took me a couple of weeks, but put it all together, you know, got my partners in on it. And now it's like, wow, like this is seriously the vision of where we want to be and where we're headed. So, I mean, basically we're looking to achieve in the next three years, $75 million of assets under management. We're looking to get to a point where we can have $2 million of revenue is the word we used in the vivid vision, but it's kind of hard. I've had a few people ask like, well, wouldn't that be more revenue than 2 million if you got $75 million? And I'm like, yes, but basically what we're saying is $2 million worth of sheer profit just for the GPs. So $2 million worth of profit. We're looking to- It's, It's called net income. Yeah, net income. Looking to uh, <laughs> to give about a hundred thousand dollars to different charities. We're looking to add about another two, three individuals on our team over the next two to three years to help streamline some of this and really turn this into a business, into a system. 
what else we're we looking to do? We're looking to continue to grow our following. I'm looking to reach over two, three million people on my podcast. I think the biggest thing, not only is the, you know, getting to 75 million and continuing to grow this thing, but one of the things I think we're we're most excited about is one of our goals is to be able to raise, you know, we didn't put a specific number on it, but a multi-million dollar deal, you know, where we need two, three, four, five million dollars. We're gonna be able to raise that in a 24 hour time frame by three years from now. I mean, you go pick up one of the 4,000 family offices in the country. They can write that check in 15 minutes. <laughs> well, yeah, but we want to do it with our own investor yeah. database to where it's like everyone's coming to us, you know, all at once. And we're like, yep, we're done cutting it off. We got all the money we need. That's kind of where we're headed. But then in the near term, like I had mentioned earlier this year, we're looking to get a thousand doors. And primarily that comes from myself, my wife, and one of my partners are really wanting to get out of our W-2 this year so that we can go full-time in this business. Awesome. 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 So real quick, I want to hop over to our radio round to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Just three questions we ask every guest. So first one is, what's your favorite book? Favorite book? I already said Vivid Vision. So I'm going to say Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Jocko Willink. That book had the biggest impact on me last year, and it continues to have the biggest impact on me. And I wasn't able to use it per se with kids or with like a, a whole team because we didn't really have like a whole team at the time, at least when I read the book. One place that it did impact me the most was in my in my marriage, taking extreme ownership in my personal, like just in every aspect of life. You know, I tried to incorporate it yeah. anywhere I could. And I think it helped a lot, you know, swallowing that pride and taking ownership sure. of all your, your shortcomings. Absolutely. Love it. It's a great one. What's your favorite quote? I actually got it up here on my wall. Uh, it's, it's losers quit when they're tired and winners quit when they've won. And the first time I ever heard that quote, I was like, that winners don't quit. That doesn't even make sense. If you're a winner, you don't quit. But diving deeper into the quote and actually, I think, listening to a podcast about it, Found it made sense in the, the beginning. Losers quit when they're tired. You know, they just give up. They don't want to keep going. Sure. They just quit. Sure, sure. But then the quitting on the winner side of it comes from, I guess, streamlining and really making your business into a business. So I heard one guy say that his best characteristic, you know, like what's your best characteristic in like the success of your business or something like that. And he said, well, I'm a quitter. <laughs> and everyone laughed. I was like, what? And he said, everything I do, I do to eventually get to the point where I can quit. Like I'm going to start something and I'm going to do it really amazing. I'm going to build all these systems and processes around it so that sure. I can quit it and have someone else come in and take it and exponentialize it more than I ever would have been able to. So that's kind of the, the meaning of the quote. Awesome. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Favorite thing to do outside of work, probably hang out with family. I mean, just we, we love to be outdoors. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We can be at the beach. We could be hiking mountains. We could be walking the dog. Like we just like to be outside as much as possible. Awesome. And how can our listeners find out more about you? How can they get in touch with you, invest with you, learn from you? Yeah. I mean, just go, just go over on our website at ferraricapital.com. Everything's there. Our podcast is there, our newsletter, ebook, every possible way to get a hold of us, you know, our social media accounts. It's all there on the website. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed it. I um, I always love interviewing other folks from 
my kind of, I call it my, my neighborhood or my neck of the woods, you know, the, the folks down here on the Gulf coast, every time I, I get somebody from Alabama or the panhandle of Florida on the show, like there's just a, just an automatic kind of like kindred spirit. I can feel like we, you know, we really, we, we run in a lot of the same environment. So awesome having you. I learned a ton, super excited about all your accomplishments and super excited to follow you in all your future ones. So, um, we definitely look forward to keeping up with you on your journey. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.